0: You're listening to a message delivered at First Family Church from the series While We Wait Exhortations from 2 Thessalonians. For more information and messages, visit our website at firstfamily.church. And for those who are remaining, take your Bibles and locate 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Would you? 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We're beginning today a mini series. Within our series on 2 Thessalonians, this is a five-week series called With the Word to Neighbors and Nations, and that is the heartbeat, no doubt, of First Family, that we would take the Word, take the gospel to those both near and far. And how can we mobilize this body of believers for that purpose? Truly, this is God's passion. To make disciples of all nations. And how can we participate in that in the best way possible? In fact, can I just be uh, very transparent with you? And I know I can be. This is the question I've been asking myself for about a year and a half. How can we mobilize 800 plus people for God's passion? Which is to make disciples of all nations. How can we do that? You see, it's really not my desire to pastor a large church. Now, maybe you think that's what all pastors are aiming for. I don't know. I can't speak for all pastors. All I can tell you is that my heart's desire isn't really just to be large. Do I, do I want us to grow? I'll nod with affirmation on that. In fact, I would say to you, in a city like Ankeny, if we're not growing, something's wrong. I won't back away from that. I mean, there's just a lot of people here, a lot of people who don't know the Lord, and a vibrant, thriving loving church who owns the lostness of its city? I think we should. We should just embrace the fact that, man, this is a city with lots of lost people. We should be ambassadors and witnesses. Do I think we should grow? Without a doubt. And if we're not growing, would I probably think something's missing? I would. I'm not going to lie to you. Because of where we're located, all right? Our location alone means something should be happening here. However, that's not my main goal. My main goal, I want to lead a body that's healthy and thriving and impacting the world and its community locally nationally nationally. i want to do that for god's glory a healthy thriving body that impacts its area do i tend to think that sometimes you can do that with a smaller number than a larger number perhaps sometimes a small band of intense people can get a lot done sometimes just a large group of folks at a buffet feeding themselves you don't get anything done are you with me so do I, do I think largeness is always the indicator that something is going well? I don't. I'm after a, a body of believers passionate and equipped to make a difference for God's glory. And so I've been asking myself, how do we get the word to neighbors and nations? How do we mobilize 800 plus people so that we're not just watching a few, but that everyone's got a role? One of the answers to that question that I've I want to share with you this morning, is found in the very first verse of 2 Thessalonians 3. Here's one way every person can take part. It's not the only way, but it is one way that every person can participate in God's passion to reach the nations. In a word, that answer is prayer. Let's understand more about that in these two verses in 2 Thessalonians where Paul says in verse 1, Finally, brothers, say the next three words with me, pray for us. Now there's your message in a nutshell. Are you with me? It's not going to be rocket science this morning. We're not going to be sitting in seminary class for the next hour. Really what we're going to see is that this one imperative verb here is actually what Paul asks the Thessalonian believers to do for him. He's considered the quote-unquote missionary. He's the team. He's the us. Who are the folks doing the pray? This is the church that he planted in Thessalonica. And what does he say he wants them to do for him? As a missionary, as a sent one, he says, guys, finally pray for us. Every person here can participate in God's passion for the nations. And in our efforts specifically to to impact specific places by doing this, by praying for those that are sent. This morning, I want to look more at what it means to pray and how we do that for those who are sent. Give you some specifics about that. I want to kind of show you a picture of what it looked like then and now. I'll take a few questions. And then this morning, we're going to practice this, all right? Now, you're, you're getting nervous. I can tell your heart's starting to race a little bit. Don't worry. We're not going to put you on the spot or embarrass you. But we are going to practice this morning praying for those that we send to other places, okay? So that's kind of our roadmap this morning. Let's dig in first of all. What does he mean and and how do we go about this idea of praying for those that are sent? As we do this, if you have questions, text them in. I'll try to address them in a few moments. Paul here asks the Thessalonian believers to pray for us in two ways. Notice them in your text. Would you, verse 1, that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. That's the first way. The second way is in verse 2, that we, that again references the us in verse 1, that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. So Paul's prayer, Paul's request that they pray for him involves two ways. Pray that the word of God would would speed ahead and be honored. Let me kind of break that apart for you. The word speed ahead is the word run. Here it's used metaphorically. It's used two other times in the New Testament. In both those times, it's a literal use, and it just means to run. It's just the word run. What Paul's asking for is that the gospel have fast feet. The gospel make haste, quick progress. And by the way, notice in this verse, how does Paul assume that the gospel will get fast feet when people pray? Are you like me, that you sometimes feel like that's when you're the slowest? (laughs) You can nod. You can say, Yeah, I feel that way sometimes. I feel like sometimes when I'm praying, like, Man, I'm not doing anything. But actually, in this verse, prayer is how we give the gospel pace. Pray that the word of the Lord may run and then be honored. The word here means to be glorified. In fact, the word is doxa. And the word glory in the Greek language is also translated weight. Let me give this. This first aspect in a styles paraphrase. Here's how I would see what Paul's asking. He says, Pray for us that the gospel would run ahead and weigh heavily on people. You catch that? That God's word would make really good progress, have fast feet, amen. It would press in. It would, in a in a good way, it would, bring, it would crush those who hear it and bring them to repentance. That's what Paul's asking. That the word of God would have its effect on people. Pray to that end. That the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, be glorified. Its weight could be felt. That's the first thing Paul says he wanted those Thessalonian believers to pray from about. He then says, this happened among them. Now, we're going to address that phrase in a moment, but I don't want to overlook it. So don't think I'm just rushing past it. I'll address it momentarily. It's an important phrase, but I want to cover, first of all, the second part of his prayer. He says, also pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. So here he's speaking of of a rescue from those who would oppose the gospel. In some sense, you could say that the first part of his prayer dealt with praying for opportunity for effectiveness. In this one, he's praying for a rescue or a release or a guarding from those who would oppose the gospel. Do you know the word wicked here is used several times in the New Testament to describe wicked things? It's never used to describe wicked people until this verse. In this verse, he is talking about wicked men. Evil men. Who are those wicked and evil men? I think in Paul's mind, he's thinking of the Jews who dogged him and trailed him and wanted to kill him throughout his years of ministry. So, why do you say that, Todd? Because if you go back to Acts 16, 17, and 18, which is the uh, historical account of the planting of the church at Thessalonica, what do you find? Paul leaves Philippi. Remember the jail and the earthquake? He goes to Thessalonica. And there he goes to the synagogue. He preaches Christ crucified. A few Greeks believed, a few women believed, perhaps a few Jews, but mainly it was Gentiles who believed. The Jews got mad and ran him out of town, so he goes to Berea next. So in Paul's mind, as he thinks about this city, he's writing a letter back to this city, to the church there. He's thinking about those Jews, those religious leaders, those impostors, who were trying to put an end to his preaching? Paul here says, Pray that we, he and his team, would be rescued from those kinds of people. So it's right to pray for the gospel to be protected and for gospel servants to be protected. In fact, I want you to notice in verse one see the word us? This two pronged prayer, in which Paul says, Pray that the gospel would, would run and be weighty, and pray that its servants would be protected, it is kind of rooted in the fact that that it happens within the idea of people doing ministry. He says, pray for us. So Paul's point is this. There are people who leave our assembly, or are coming through our assembly, and they're going to do two things. They're, they're, They're going to go proclaim the gospel in other places. They're going to be sent out to plant churches. As they do that, they're going to encounter opposition. Pray two things. That the gospel that they take would really make good progress, find a a clear path, and weigh on people effectively, be glorified, and that those who oppose it would be hindered. This is how we pray for those who go out from us or who come through while we're here and, and go to other places with the gospel. Guys, this is not rocket science. This is plain, practical, simple teaching about how to pray for missionaries. Now, at First Family, we use the word partners. If you're new here to First Family, when we say partners, we mean missionaries. We do that because in our 21st century world, it's just a lot different than it was in the 20th century. And we're a lot more careful with our language than, than we were uh, than, than churches in the past. And I think it's necessary and it's important. So you're going to hear us say partners more often than you will hear say missionaries. Know this. When we say partners, we're talking about those whether indirectly or directly, that we support who are doing this very thing, they're going to other places to plant churches, to make disciples of all nations, and we're praying that the word of the Lord will speed ahead of them and be honored, that God's gospel will have fast feet and weigh effectively on people, and that those who oppose it, they'll have rescue or deliverance from that opposition. That's what we're asking for. That's how you should pray for partners. Many of you support other partners, quote-unquote missionaries, uh, with other monies you have, with other energies you have, other resources. This is the way to pray for them as well. Now, I don't know if you do this or not, but I hope this morning, in just a very simple way, you now have a better understanding of how to pray for those who take the gospel to other places. In two ways, for opportunity and against opposition. Let's put it in a single sentence, can we? Here's what I would call our take-home truth today. Here are everything. Here is everything in a nutshell. That our strongest position as allies to our partners, i.e., what's the word for that? Okay, good. We're on the same track. Excellent. Our strongest position. We've said for years that our first and best action is always prayer. So we're going to repeat this. We're going to re-emphasize the fundamental need that we have as God's children. And the fundamental posture we take is one of, of humility, submission, and prayer on our knees. Our strongest position as allies to our partners is on our knees before God's throne praying both for gospel effectiveness, key word there is what? Opportunity. And against God's enemies, Keyword: there? Opposition. So let's read it together, can we? Our strongest position as allies to our partners is on our knees before God's throne, praying both for gospel effectiveness, opportunity, and against God's enemies, opposition. Now we're going to practice this in a little bit. Before we do that, I want to take a few questions. And before that, I want to show you what this looks like. Because we can arrive at a principle in Scripture deduce it from the text, inspect, dissect the words, it makes sense. Okay, I'm with you, Todd. But what does this look like? I know what the text calls for. What does the passage look like? Let me show you what it looked like then, and I'll show what it looks like now. And we'll know that in between, it does look the same. What does it look like for God's word to run ahead and weigh on people effectively, and for its enemies to be hindered. Well, in this historical context, I think the explanation, the answer to that is found in 1 Thessalonians. Will you turn back a couple of pages to chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians and can I show you just quickly what this text looked like in that setting. The Bible is the best commentator on itself. And so when Paul says in this simple phrase in 2 Thessalonians 3 that he wanted them to pray that the Word of God would speed ahead, as happened among you he 's providing an illustration. he said hey here 's what this looked like when it happened with you. Pray that it will duplicate itself. Pray that it will happen again that 's what he 's saying here. So what did it look like the first time? What happened among them? He describes that in First Thessalonians chapter one. He begins in about verse four i won't read all of this to you except he talks about how they are loved, they're chosen. Um, how they received the word of God with uh, joy, and yet in the middle of affliction. This resulted, it says in verse 7, that they became examples to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Examples of what? How God's word comes to people in the middle of persecution, and yet they received it with joy. Or how God's word works in people. They became examples of that. He expounds on this in verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth or trumpeted forth from you in Macedonia and Decai, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. Now that's a testimony, isn't it, people? That's a portrait. I mean, wow. What God did in their midst when Paul brought the gospel and the Greeks believed, even though the Gentiles persecuted him, what God did, did there was sounded forth in places even beyond their immediate area of Macedonia and Achaia to the point that Paul says next, we need not say anything. Did you catch that? That's what it looks like for the word of God to run and weigh on people. That sometimes when you see it happen, you're like, wow, no explanation needed. (laughs) Like, whoa, God just stepped in there and you just you kind of get a picture of oh so that's god at work that's god's word at work he says here we didn't say anything because your faith was the loudest testimony here's the kind of report that was given that was sounded out that they didn't need to explain technically he says in verse 9 they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you how you turned to god from idols to serve the living and true god and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Here's what it looked like in Thessalonica. Folks heard the gospel, and watch this, not not rocket science again. They turned from idols. They served the living and true God. And they enduringly and patiently waited for him. That's what Paul says. This is what it looks like for the Word of God to weigh on people, to to have a path without opposition. People will turn from their idols. What's an idol, Todd? Anything that would say, You don't need Jesus. Anything that would say to you, I can give you standing before God, you don't need Jesus. Things that try to take the place of Jesus' work, those are idols. God grants repentance, we turn from those, we serve the living and true God as opposed to serving a dead, little g God, that's an idol, and then we wait for it from heaven. Question, listen very carefully, don't lose me here. If those things have not happened, why would we say the word of God is working in someone's life? Let's bring this closer to home. If, if your life is not a picture, listen very carefully. If your life is not a picture of having turned from idols, serving the living God, and now patiently enduring, waiting for Him from heaven, if this is not the, the picture of your life, maybe... Maybe God's word has not come in and done its work. Maybe you have believed more of the American version of Christianity. Maybe you believe the cultural definition. As opposed to the understanding. The biblical picture of what it means. For God's word to land and do its work. God's word changes people. That's how you know it's landed. In fact, look at verse 13 of chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians. Here Paul kind of sums up a lot of what he said in chapters 1 and 2 by describing their, their experience in a simpler way. He just says, We thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. This is why we pray for it to get a clear path. Fast feet with no hindrance. Why? Because it contains the power to change your life. And can I just say to you as an honest, transparent pastor who cares for you, who loves you, even if you're a guest and I don't really know you yet, I love you in a godly way and care about your soul. And I want you to hear the truth that unless we're turned from idols... We're serving the Lord and we're waiting. And unless unless this is happening, this is the work of God's word, unless that's happening, I I would, if I were you, I would ask myself some hard questions. Am I believing biblical Christianity? Am I trusting Jesus, rejecting idols? Or am I just kind of holding on to a cultural concept that, you know what, just go to a church, hang out in the rows, give a few dollars? Make a few connections, act good, be moral, you'll get in. No, it doesn't matter how good or bad you've been. It matters who and what you believe. This is the point of the gospel having a clear path. So this is what it looked like then. By the way, this is what it looks like now. A changed life is always the litmus test. So this week my mind went to several people here. You may be in this service, you may not. I'm going to call your names out. People who have been changed by God's word, gloriously, beautifully. Some in the past and some recently. You're getting nervous, aren't you? You should be. One of my favorite stories is that of Tom Urban. A lot of you know Tom. Um, He leads our mission efforts to Utah been real strategic and important there but Tom wasn't always a Christian we had been planted maybe a few months and Tom shows up with his wife and by the way there are they're, they're moral good people in Ankeny, Ankeny's filled with a bunch of good moral people, many of them are lost Tom was one of those it was a strange day for him, he'd never been to a service in a Protestant church he said to one of our Uh, members. In fact, it was Randy Hensel who said this to Randy and Sarah. He said, you know, the day I'll come to one of your small groups is the day you bring uh, uh, your small group to my house. Kind of like a challenge, you know. We only had seven small groups at that point in our church. We were less than a year old. Uh, We met at the old Nevlin Center. The next week, Randy and Sarah and their small group were knocking on Tom's door, (laughs) Southwest Ankeny. And Randy says, Tom, you challenged us that you'd only come to a small group if we showed up at your house. We're here, can we come in? And Tom's not gonna be beat. (laughs) He lets them in. Nine months later, Tom bows his head. He says, you know, it doesn't matter how good I am, how much I give, how moral I am. It's the truth about Jesus that saves me. And Tom got saved, amen? The gospel Ran ahead with fast feet and weighed on Tom and put all of his self righteousness in the right perspective. Like, wow, all of the good things I do, I do—they stink to God when it comes to justification. They don't matter. Yeah, that's right. So what do I do? You need Jesus. And Tom got saved. God saved Tom. Two weeks ago, here on this front row, a dad brings a his, his young daughter in elementary. She sees her need of Christ. He says, Todd, we've been talking at home. I think this week my daughter has just, for the you know, first time, kind of seen her need and wants to be saved. And So I just kind of worked with them and confirmed and talked through the gospel. But at home, this little girl in childlike faith turned from idols to serve the living and true God. So you have 12 years ago an adult named Tom, two weeks ago a, a young girl, Right here, that same week after the service, one of our Bondurant families, the Hiddles, they baptized little Gracie, become a Christian recently, baptized her, she confessed her faith in front of those folks from our Bondurant campus. I think about Andrew Harvey. Andrew was saved a couple years ago, just got baptized a few weeks ago. I did their wedding. Let me tell you a great story about Andrew, and I don't think they're back from their honeymoon yet. If you're here, raise your hand, or Andrew, I'll apologize later. Uh, Andrew did an awesome thing. He's a new Christian, all right? And his reception, um, you know, he didn't ask me to come pray. He didn't ask one of the dads to come pray. He stood up in front of all those folks. And I'll just be frank with you, many of them were lost. A lot of his friends from his past. He's a new Christian. He stood up and says, well, before we eat, he said, I just want to pray and thank God. I didn't know he had the guts to do that. I'll be frank with you. I'm in there. I'm out there with my wife, and I'm just like, "Wow, look at Andrew!" And he he owns that moment, in a way like this guy. Yeah, he's proud to be owned by God, and he leads in prayer in front of all these people without any fear. Am I so proud of him? You know what? God's words landed, doing its work. I think about George Stock. George has been saved a few years now. He comes at eight thirty-two. He'd been attending for a few weeks and he emailed me and said, hey, um, can we meet for coffee? I don't drink coffee, but I love Diet Coke. And he said, "Uh, I want to talk to you about this thing called salvation. So we met at Panera. He said, so you're really telling me that it doesn't matter what I do, that Jesus has done everything? He could not grasp the fact that Christ is sufficient. 30, 45 minutes later, he says, I think I get it. God was opening his eyes The gospel was landing, God doing the operation of raising dead people to life. George was saved and changed. And that story can be repeated in people 12 years ago and people this year. You say, Todd, what, what is that? That's the word of God moving ahead without opposition because of the prayers of people. And then God doing what only God can do, saving people. I think about the Australia team. They're in Australia. They're at a men's event helping our partners. And Donna Meter, who is on the team, is either in the kitchen doing some work or with a book table. She's doing something there at the event. And a young teenage boy keeps talking to her. Long story short, he gets saved at some point in this process and emails her once they even get back and shares with her all this stuff. What was that? That's God's word going ahead, getting fast feet. Landing and doing his job. How do we know that? Because people's lives are changed. That's what's happening. So why do we pray for God's word not to have opposition and to run and be effective? So that lives can be changed. Souls can be saved. That's the goal. It looked that way in the first century at Thessalonica. It looks that way in the 21st century in Ankeny. And in between those two centuries and all across the world, that's what it looks like. The gospel comes in, God saves us and grows us. We turn from idols, we serve the living God, and we wait for him from heaven. I would be remiss, derelict as a pastor, if I didn't make sure you had at least this opportunity to ask Christ to save you. If you're realizing right now, that's not my experience. I've not turned from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for Him enduringly and patiently. That's not what... Then why wait to trust Christ this morning? Right now, just in your chair, just ask the God of heaven who sent His Son to be your only Savior, to save you from your sin. Turn from idols, trust in Jesus, and let God change you by the power of His gospel. It's not about filling a card out or... Or walking an aisle. It's not about a place or a process. It's about a posture of repentance to a person, Jesus Christ. And when that takes place, God saves sinners. Amen.